The task is open-ended. It will never be finished, but a passionate effort to answer this challenge will help change the world. Change is possible. Do not limit yourself. Do not stop yourself. We have a lot on our plate. To succeed, we must transform. Hello and welcome to Meet the Leader, a podcast where the world's top pioneers, changemakers, and experts share the projects that excite them and the habits they couldn't work without. I'm Linda Lacina of the World Economic Forum, and each episode of Meet the Leader, we'll talk with people doing the tough work of making change happen. These top names will tell us about the problems they're tackling and the lessons they've learned. There will also, I promise, be book recommendations. This is the first ever episode of Meet the Leader, and at the start, you heard the voices of Malala Yousafzai, Nobel Prize winning activist, Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Dr. Tedros, the Director General of the World Health Organization. I picked those quotes myself because I like things that speak to determination and resilience, qualities that I think leaders need and qualities I don't think we talk nearly enough about. They're easy to overlook. And in our conversations, I hope to unearth other unsung personal qualities, traits, and habits that underpin any big change. Today, our leader is Dario Gill. He is the director of IBM Research, one of the world's largest research labs and home to one of the world's most powerful supercomputers. During the pandemic, IBM led a special global consortium that made the world's supercomputers available for free to researchers around the world to help fight the virus. The project got Dario thinking about the need for a science readiness reserves, a new super squad of scientists who could join together solely to prevent future calamities with the best technology at their fingertips. Dario will talk to us about why we need this super squad and how it will help the world. He'll also tell us what he's learned so far about what makes great collaborations tick and why he blasts Bach on the way into work. But first, we'll start with that super squad the Science Readiness Reserves. The idea of the Science Readiness Reserves takes a bit of inspiration to uh, what happens in a different context. Let's look at the idea in the military that you can call in the context of a national emergency. Could we mobilize a group of volunteer scientists that engage in coordinated planning ahead of the emergency, like a pandemic or even a meteorite, so that we can put forth a plan for how we would work together to respond when we were called upon? It seems surprising to me that something like this didn't already exist, that there wasn't already some sort of mechanism where all the world's scientists were tapped into the world's best technologies to prevent us from things like meteorites and other crises. Why doesn't it exist, Dario? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question. When you mention to people and colleagues the idea, I think that's a very normal response. It says, like, doesn't that exist? Isn't that in place already? <laughs> and uh, no, it doesn't, uh, surprisingly. So here, here's a fact that is interesting to me. If you look at, for example, in the case of the United States, I mean, maybe in other countries could be similar. The United States spends about $600 billion a year in R&D. If you look at where that money is spent, about 70% of the R&D spent is in the private sector. So that tells you something interesting. It tells you that the scientific and technical capacity of the nation is broadly distributed between federal labs, academia, the private sector. And if you generalize that thought and you say, when we deal with an emergency, let's say a pandemic, 
Today, we have a model where we say, who is responsible for dealing with that? And you would say internationally, like the World Health Organization, the WHO, uh, within the context of a country like the United States, you would say, well, the CDC as an example. But the reality is that you need to tap onto expertise and talent that is very distributed. And that coordination mechanism, that ability to activate that talent towards solving problems when we're dealing with an emergency is really not there. It, it, it is left as an exercise to the reader, so to speak, that in the moment of the crisis, we got to self-organize and there needs to be a coordination mechanism. So you're right. Surprisingly, it doesn't exist, but it ought to. I think what's also interesting about this is that uh, we, I think we've seen it through the coronavirus pandemic that some of leadership is invisible. The coordination aspect, who do we get in the room? Why is it so important for people to have an idea of the collaboration required to solve and prevent big problems? Well, because to be able to mobilize our talents and resources, it requires leadership and coordination. I mean, we, we know it even in our private context, if we have to organize a wedding, right? Let's just say that, like how many stakeholders need to come together, right? To get that done. So imagine a, a response to something as sophisticated and difficult as a pandemic. I'm a big believer on the power of leadership and institutions, right? Because, you know, the, the higher the quality of the institutions we have in a society, the more we are able to respond and create, you know, opportunities for everybody. So, and we should not be satisfied that all the institutions that we need have been invented and created, you know, as we confront new challenges, part of their creativity and the innovation that has to be present in society has to be the willingness to modify and improve existing ones and sometimes to create net new ones. If you look at after a major crisis like World War II, many of the you know, really important scientific institutions were created right after that. In the context of the United States, for example, the National Science Foundation, you know, I serve on the National Science Board of the United States, and that's a good example of something that was created following a world war, where the societal need that was being pursued was, how do we keep mobilizing scientific talent, but in the context of peace? So an institution had to be invented. And, and I think in a similar situation, right now we gotta do the same thing. The creativity of how we're gonna work with each other, reflecting that talent is distributed. And that's what's new in the 21st century. It's not about one single institution that is gonna solve our problems, but a different way to collaborate with one another. You had a special initiative during the beginning of the coronavirus, which was harnessing the world's supercomputers, uh, and that sort of helped inspire the science readiness reserves. Can you tell us a little bit about the consortium, and sort of how that sort of helped spark this idea of the reserves and why it was needed? Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, that that is where the idea came from. And so the COVID-19 High Performance Computing Consortium got originated in March out of a simple idea that if we need to discover faster, in this case, treatments, a cure, you know, approaches to understand the data we were generating, computers can help. Computers can be a means to accelerate virtual experiments so that when we actually have to do the physical experiment, we can conduct them more efficiently. And a special type of computers that are particularly helpful are supercomputers. Mm -hmm. So we said, well, Supercomputers, again, are in different places, right? They're distributed in national labs, in the National Science Foundation, NASA has them, IBM has them, you know, Microsoft and Google and Amazon and universities. So why couldn't we come together, aggregate computing power and make it available to the best scientists that had a need? 
and to do it with greater speed. Mm -hmm. So in just a matter of five days, the founding group got together and we said, yeah, we're going to do this. And to date, we have aggregated now 600 petaflops, which may be a meaningless number to people, but it's like the largest public-private consortium in history in terms of computing. We've aggregated, you know, most of the world's supercomputers, and we're supporting now over 87 active projects. We have 43 consortium members all over the world. And uh, it's been really remarkable how on a volunteer basis, everybody just basically raising their hand with no legal contracts, we have been able to create a new institution of sorts to be able to do this rapid matching. And to help people understand how a supercomputer was helpful in the crisis, can you tell me a little bit about the impact that it had on researchers' projects? If you look at like one of the early pieces of work that was done at a place called Oak Ridge National Laboratory, uh, working with researchers at the University of Tennessee, one of the things they did is they needed to find, you know, a part of the scientific task of finding the coronavirus is to find small molecules, as an example, that could bind to the virus and deactivate it. But if you look at the sea of molecular compounds that are available to you that could interact with the virus, it's just massive. Mm -hmm. So they use these supercomputers to be able to screen thousands and thousands of potential compounds and then be able to down-select, you know, the dozens of compounds that were the most promising that could bind. If you did it in a normal computer, it would take you many, many, many months to do it. They were able to do that in under two days. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence of doing that, then you can guide the experimental teams and says, don't try these thousands, try these 70 or these 30 or these 10. So that's a really wonderful example of saying normal computer takes you a long time, compress the time, and then be able to guide the experimental work as a consequence of doing that. And, and why is it particularly important to be mobilizing the scientific community? Why, why is that particularly important to be mobilizing for prevention? I'm a passionate believer that science and scientific thinking needs to be elevated and scaled through all aspects of society. If you look at the highest level of decision making, both in the context of political systems, but also in the context of business, I think it's fair to say that economic thinking, legal thinking, even military thinking are the kinds of approaches to how we look at the world that today are dominant. Mm -hmm. And I think scientific thinking needs to be a co-equal. Look at the context situation that we have right now. We don't know what the world is going to look like. We don't know all the consequences and the changes. When the paradigm you're confronting is one of not just learning from what happened in the past, but discovering what needs to happen or what ought to occur. The scientific method is one of the most powerful ones we know around how to discover what's new. So that needs to be elevated beyond scientists mm -hmm. as a way of thinking, as a way to make decisions, and science can inform and illuminate almost every of the great challenges we confront, from pandemics to global warming and beyond. So given all this, what are some lessons that would really help the uh, readiness reserves? One lesson, I think, is that it sure helps to have urgency, meaning it, there's a big difference when something is a must-have versus a good to have. If you engage in collaboration, but it's kind of like, well, it'd be nice if we collaborated versus we need each other. We need to tap onto the resources that we each have and put them to good use. Uh, makes a difference. So purpose and urgency makes a huge difference. 
The second one is that it's really important to have a governance model that allows for uh, agile decision-making. So early on, we established an executive board that is composed of public and um, private leaders. I mean, I co-chair the board with then the Secretary of Science in the Department of Energy, but it's composed of uh, university leaders, different agency leaders in the United States, and private sector all working collaboratively. But, but we have a mechanism to make decisions on a weekly basis if we need to course correct. So I think that that helps. And then the third thing I've learned is that individual leaderships makes a huge difference, right? In the end, there's always a few individuals that have to take the mantle and really devote the time and effort required to overcome the inevitable obstacles, right? If there's not that passion to see it through, it's hard, it's hard to follow through. There's been a sort of an odd moment in time where we need government leadership and institutional leadership more than ever because we've got big problems and big problems only are solved by sort of big big efforts and big resources right um but there's also been this sort of erosion of trust on a number of levels on a number of, of platforms and there's also been uh, a movement where folks are attempt to trust science how can we overcome this uh, sort of weird time that we have where there's a right, we need to build up trust in both institutions and in science I have a lot of confidence uh, in continuing to regain trust through science as part of the reason why I think elevating scientific thinking and the scientific method broadly in society is such an important task, even politically and for business, because science works. You know, the reason I have a lot of confidence is because the method works. And, and therefore, if we're able to show how when you apply to problems and if you're a good scientist and, you know, we collaborate in a way that is conducive to problem solving, over time, people say, hey, that thing worked. And as you accrue, you know, success and, you know, science also has failures is part of the understanding. But like the difference is we learn from our failures and there's a mechanism to then improve it next time. So uh, I have confidence in the method for all the bickering that may be going on. In the end, people know that it's going to be science that gets us out of this crisis, that every other thing that we're doing, are just, it's just buying us time until there's an actual structural solution, which is going to be a treatment and a vaccine. And that is going to be enabled by science. I, I want to pick up a thread you mentioned earlier with putting scientists sort of at the forefront of making solutions. How important is it for people to see scientists as role models and public leaders? Hugely important. Hugely important. We were talking before about economic thinking and legal thinking. Just look at in the context of you know, television or radio or like the op-eds we write or events economists and lawyers and so on and ever present. We see them all the time, we engage and, and, and we see in dialogue. How often do we see it for scientists absent moments of a crisis or emergency where you, you're actually right? You say, oh, I have a problem. Call them in for a minute and then please leave the room. I, I guess my recommendation is no, no more leaving the room. They need to be uh, part of there. Then the scientists themselves, ourselves, we have a responsibility to engage broadly beyond the scientific thinking. We need to make ties and establish connections with each other and not live in a rarefied world. In the end, we're citizens like everybody else and we have a responsibility to one another. If you could say one thing about collaboration, what is it? What have you learned? I would say collaboration is a methodology within the context of achieving a goal. I look at four things. I say, what's a common purpose? So where are we going? What are we trying to achieve? And clarity on that. The second one is team and team composition. What is the highest quality 
uh, team that we can form and the incentives we're going to create with each team. The third piece is the infrastructure. Are we going to equip that team with the resources from an infrastructure perspective to accomplish the goal? In the context of the high-performance computing, if we don't give them supercomputers, they're not going to accomplish the goal. And the fourth element is the funding model, the sustainability of the, of the enterprise. How are we going to pay for it? How is it going to last over time? And it sounds kind of trivial when you list them like that, but so often I encounter environments where people have a good vision and no team, or they have a vision and a team and no money, or they have money and no vision. And, and you know, to get all four things correct is the, I, I talk about having the four legs of a table, and then it's stable if you leave something on it or you build on it. But if one of the legs is not there, the table is always tilted and things are always slipping off the table. And you're constantly trying to pick up what's falling as opposed to focus on building something above it. If we've done everything right and the science readiness preserves is in place, how is the world different? Uh, what is the sort of the before and the after that we could expect once something like this would be sort of really up and running? Well, I think the outcome that we would seek is that we would be able to anticipate and respond to crisis much faster and more efficiently than before. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's go back in the context of, of the, a military when you, you know, let's say there's a hurricane or some big event that is happening and, and you activate a reserve to be able to, you know, move massive amount of sand and be able to distribute food and so on. The reality is, is that you're responding faster, you're saving lives, you know, and you're allowing people to get back to their normal life with greater speed. So I, I think that that's what allows us to do better thinking, better decision making, and in the end, a faster response and bringing the world back to its normal state. In many other situations, what we're looking at is improving the quality of response. I was reading an article recently about the, the challenges in general of, of coronaviruses, right? In general, and like how they're going to continue. We're going to be able to confront this uh, many, many times. And there was this line that I really like. It says, in the end, it's going to be our wits against their genes. Mm -hmm. and, and the reality is nature in this aspect is totally agnostic about us, right? It's going to continue to mutate. So the only mechanism we have is to outsmart it and, and to be sophisticated enough to understand it and do something about it. Say it doesn't happen. Worst case scenario, what does the world look like 2030? Well, today we respond with the institutions we have, right? So, so we're going to continue to respond with, with the resources that we've put in place. And, and I think what I would ask then everybody is to reflect of whether we do feel that we have the institutions that we need to confront the challenges ahead. Mm -hmm. And the, the, my belief is that something like this, some versions like this are inevitable mm -hmm. because talent is distributed. And in the current context, it's not about a magical single place that will figure everything out. It's about saying, hey, how are we going to tap and coordinate and aggregate talent and resources when we need it in ways that make sense, that is not impossibly difficult, right? And, and I think some version of this we're going to have to figure out. But the network dimension of how we come together is really the great task ahead in terms of institutional innovation. 
what is something that you've read that you think that everybody should be reading? Maybe it changed your mind. Maybe it uh, just sort of stuck with you and you recommend it. What's a book that everybody should be reading in your, in your opinion? I just finished this weekend uh, a book by Michael Sandel called uh, The Tyranny of Merit. Mm. It's an analysis of the dark side of meritocracy and how, according to Sandel, it really has contributed directly to some of the poison in our politics that we experience and some of the crises that, that we're witnessing. So uh, it, it seems, it's, it's a very, very interesting argument that I encourage everybody to look at because first order, it seems counterintuitive. Like don't we all want a meritocratic ideal and shouldn't that be the basis by which we organize society? But I think in his reflection and analysis, if you look deep down, the number of consequences are very problematic. First of all, for the winners, in quotes, of the meritocratic uh, system, it creates a form of hubris where they think their success is solely theirs. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, for the losers, in quote, of the meritocratic system, it passes a judgment that it says, you did not rise because you did not deserve it. And that that inherent tension of a system designed around the meritocratic ideal can cause a fracture of society in its own right perhaps best expressed in the context of the book around the thought that they claim that the answer to the future of a country is that 100% of the people should go to college, as an example. When the reality of it in the context of the United States, as an example, two-thirds don't have a college degree. So credentialism from that aspect of it as the only avenue for progress ultimately leaves the majority of the population behind. What's a habit that you personally swear by and how does it help you be successful in your work? Um, listening to Bach every day. For me, Bach is, I really believe that it truly orders my mind. So I, I love doing that every day and I recommend it for everybody. And, and in that ordering of your mind, how is your day different? I have to sort of do domain switching so quickly from meeting to meeting and so many different contexts. And any attempt to try to have sort of like this even keel and to be in the moment, I think it requires that kind of mindfulness and, and sort of awareness of your emotions and what is sort of behind that, you know, maybe residual aspects from previous meetings or previous tension or previous things that you've been dealing with. So that aspect of emotional management as a means to accomplish the goals when you have to do contact switching very rapidly, I think it's extremely important. I always listen in the morning, driving in, and also at night. I love uh, when I can to listen to it reasonably loud. I think m music when it's played with like elevator music is not the same. Coming up next week on Meet the Leader, we'll talk to Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank of America, who helped drive the creation of a core set of metrics that help companies measure how they're doing well for society. Here's Brian talking at the launch of the ESG metrics at our Sustainable Development Impact Summit last month. What, what these metrics represent is the progress that society wants companies to make. The ones doing the right thing and making progress in whatever goals they set should be invested in and should be encouraged to keep going. The ones who either haven't disclosed or aren't making progress, people should ask them, when are you going to make the progress? And don't forget to check out the other great podcast put together by my colleague, Robin Pomeroy. Here's a teaser from The Great Reset, 
a podcast about building back better after the coronavirus pandemic. COVID-19 pandemic has without a doubt been the greatest disruption to education that the world has ever seen. Welcome to The Great Reset, a podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at how we can build a cleaner, fairer, smarter world after COVID-19. This week, education. The pandemic has transformed the way we teach and learn. In this episode, we talk to the Sesame Workshop about the impact on young children. COVID is both an opportunity and an alarm bell to say, if we don't invest in education, it will be at our peril. And we'll hear how the Muppets are helping children around the world cope with the pandemic and continue their education despite it. We'll even be getting an exclusive guest appearance from someone direct from Sesame Street. Hello, everybody. It is I, your cute and adorable Paul Grover, with a message for listeners of The Great Reset. Subscribe to The Great Reset on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and take a moment to like, rate, and review us. Now, hardly any children have access to quality learning. During a global pandemic, what could be more important than this powerful tool of media? I'm Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum, and this is The Great Reset. That was Robin with the latest episode of The Great Reset. Get that and all of our World Economic Forum podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other top platforms. And for expansive Q&As from our interviews, go to wef.ch slash podcasts, where you'll also find my interview with Dario. My thanks go out to Robin Pomeroy, Gareth Nolan, Anna Bruce Lockhart, Mark Jones, and of course, Dario Gill. And thanks to you, too, for listening. Until next time, I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a wonderful day.